following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. The theme of this section for these three sermons last week, this week, and next Sunday is uh, the end times. And Jesus speaks about the end that is coming. Uh, and and in, this, uh, in this section, he really gives warning signs. Uh, now, last week we looked at what are not the warning signs, and Jesus was very clear about the things that, that, uh, that were not, not the signs of the end. And he says, um, kind of the context and backdrop of this, he says that some were speaking of the temple, how, how it was adorned with noble stones and, and such magnificent offerings. Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be torn down, thrown down. He says the temple is going to be destroyed. And so they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So last week, Jesus talked about all the things that are not the sign. Remember, he talked about there will be wars, there will be political chaos, there will be wicked rulers. He said there will be natural disasters, there will be earthquakes and floods and tsunamis. He said those are not the signs. He says those are going to be true of life on earth until uh, the the sun returns. Uh, Those are not the signs. But then in... in, uh, in the passage we're going to look at today, uh, he begins to unfold what the true signs will be. And he looks at two events. And uh, for the Jews, it was hard for them to imagine that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple would not also be the end of the world. So they pictured in their minds this as one event. But Jesus really shows that they're two separate events, that uh, Jerusalem would fall, the temple would be destroyed, um, but that the end would still be a ways off after that. And they would exist as two separate events. Um, and in this section, he gives the signs, uh, both of the fall of Jerusalem as well as uh, the end of the world. So it's good to know what the signs are and how we should respond to them. And sadly, I had some really funny signs of uh, traffic signs, warning signs that were just funny. Uh, like one was a, uh, posted on the top of a toilet bowl that said, do not dive. <laughs> Some other funny ones. Uh, you'll just have to use your imagination. Uh, the point is, the signs only mean something if we, if we know what they're warning us about and what we're supposed to do in response to it. Uh, so let me read uh, from chapter 21, verses, starting at verse 25. And here are the signs. He says, and and there will be, I'm sorry, let's start in verse 20, sorry. Uh, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for those women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. 
until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be uh, signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is to come on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Uh, so let's look at these, these signs. Ed, oh, thank you so much. So get the warning signs and what we're supposed to do in response. And the first, uh, the first point, I have two main points. Since I don't have the outline, I'll give you the main points. The first point, know when it's time to run. Okay, know when it's time to run. Uh, in the first section, Jesus focuses on specifically the destruction of Jerusalem. And again, he says, when you see, this is the sign. He says, when you see Jer- Jerusalem, the city, surrounded by armies then know that its desolation has come near. Now, you may read this and say, okay, you know, if I saw any city, let's say Chiang Mai, surrounded by an army and encamped, um, you know, it wouldn't take, I wouldn't have to be a rocket scientist or a political analyst to go, okay, I think the end is near, right? It seems a bit obvious. Uh, And looking back at it, because we know that this is exactly what happened in Jerusalem. It was surrounded by the Romans, uh, under, under General Titus, uh, they set up an encampment of tens of thousands of Roman soldiers around the city. They laid siege, siege to it. They cut off the water supply, the food supply. And after many months, they invaded the city and destroyed it. And we go, well, yeah, duh. You know, when the Romans show up and surround your city, of course the end is near. Uh, what kind of a sign is that? Right? Well, if you understand a little bit about Jerusalem's history and the way Jews thought about the, the city of Jerusalem, uh, just being surrounded by armies is not necessarily a sign against the city. And the reality is that uh, this had happened on many occasions for Jerusalem. And part of uh, the Old Testament, part of the history that they celebrated was the fact that oftentimes the city was laid siege, was surrounded by uh, overwhelming enemies, and God came down and rescued the city in very dramatic ways sometimes destroying armies of hundreds of thousands of people, sometimes uh, causing them to, to flee in, in the middle of the night, right? sometimes leaving all their food and all their armor behind. Uh, so, um, so it wouldn't be a given for the Jews, especially living with that history and that heritage. And on top of that, they, they really viewed that the, the city of Jerusalem, because it was the place where the temple dwelled, uh, was housed, that it was somehow indestructible, that, that really, you know, God would not let harm come to the temple. But Jesus says, don't be deceived, don't be fooled. I'll tell you the signs. Next time, Jerusalem is surrounded and encamped by, by, by a host of, of, of army, comes against it. Know that the end is near. Right? Know that the end is near. And in short, Jesus says, when the army shows up, it is time to run. Right? Don't have this false notion that God's going to rescue Jerusalem. He's not. And uh, 
And so that's exactly what happens. And, and the scripture says that uh, let those in, who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Right? When you see this sign, okay, what you need to do is run. Get out of the city. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter in. It's kind of obvious, right? Jesus says it's going to happen. And when it happens, you need to run. You need to escape. You need to get out of the way because uh, that army is going to destroy Jerusalem. Um, and when we read, read on a little bit, uh, the destruction that comes is, is, is really not happy. Right? And the, the, the description that Jesus gives is quite harsh. Um, there will not be a rescue. There will not be salvation. And he explains why. He says there's very good reasons why um, this destruction must come. And notice what he says. He says, um, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are outside the city depart. Let not those who enter uh, in the country enter in. For those are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus says not only will it be the end of the city, the end of the temple, but it's, it's for a very clear and specific reason, and that reason is God is pouring out his vengeance on the city uh, to fulfill what was written in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, God had made very clear that if they did not follow him, if they did not worship him as he prescribed, if they did not honor him as they designated, he would destroy them. He would turn against them and he would destroy the city and the temple. And it describes it as a period of great distress. And the, the, the idea there is it's a time of great calamity and disaster. It is devastating. And the destruction that would come on the city would be horrific. And looking back, we know that's exactly what happened. Uh, when the Romans came and they laid siege to the city, it was not a Thai-style coup. Okay? Thai-style coups, you know how this works here. Not a shot is fired, right? No blood is shed. Uh, Thai people, they've, they've done this so much, they really know how to do it well, right? Uh, it's, just, it's just a peaceful thing, right? And I kind of like that. It's good. But that's not what's going to happen when Rome comes against uh, Jerusalem, Jesus says. And that's not what happened. They came and they laid siege. They cut off food supplies and water supplies in the city for months. Right? And, uh, and during Passover, the year before, uh, in 70 AD, when all this happened, during Passover... The, the, the Romans were very sneaky and tricky and, and they wanted to speed up the process and they knew that the, the Jews had food and, and water in storage. So what they, they did is they, they had kind of a peace treaty and they said, hey, look, it's Passover. We know this is a really important festival for you. So what we'd like to do is we'd like to just kind of open up the city and allow you to have Passover and we'll just, you know, we'll just we won't interfere, right? So normally during Passover... Uh, up to a million people would come to the city. Now, okay, now, if you're, if you're a pilgrim, right, and you, and you see Jerusalem surrounded by Romans, and especially if you had heard Jesus teach, and certainly th these writings had been distributed and were well known, right, if you're a Christian, you don't go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. 
But it was amazing how many people did go. Crazy how many people went. And filled the city. And then guess what the Romans did? Shut the door, right? They let them in. They didn't let them out, right? And it just accelerated uh, the problem. And within time, and I'm sorry, this is horrific, but it's history. Within time, the, the starvation was so great that uh, Josephus records mothers were cooking their own children to eat them. Right? It was horrible. Eventually, uh, the Jews knew they were in, in desperation, so they, they attacked the Romans. The Romans uh, broke through the wall, invaded the city, and uh, they were furious. And Josephus says that Titus tried to control and contain the army, but he couldn't. Now, Josephus had reasons for perhaps he was a prisoner of Titus, uh, so he may not have told the whole picture the way it really was, but he kind of gets Titus off the hook. But the reality is they burned down the city, they burned down the temple. Uh, Josephus records that they slaughtered by sword a million people. A million, right? Those few who were left, uh, about 97,000 were let off into captivity in chains. And most of them ended up being hauled off as prisoners and captives to Egypt, now, if you're a Jew, who, you know, your, your greatest history that you celebrate in the Passover is what? Being, being set free from captivity in Egypt, right? There's nothing worse than ending up being drug off in captivity to Egypt to be a slave there. It's like the ultimate insult. Right? Um, it was horrible. And, and Jesus says that it will be this way that the city will, will, will not be rebuilt, will not be inhabited by the Jews. It will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is finished. And certainly for some 2,000 years now, the city has been um, in the hands of Gentiles. And, and, of course, you can argue, well, it's, it's back in the hands of the J Jewish people now. That's true. However, their most sacred site, the holy site of the temple, is still off limits to the Jews. Right? The only way a Jew can go in there is to lie and say they're not Jewish. And I read some funny things on the Internet, how Jews would tell people how, you know, you speak a lot of English, you pretend you're a tourist, you say you're from California because apparently there's no Jews from California. And, um, you know, but even if you go in, even if you can trick the guards and, and convince them you're not really Jewish and you get in, they cannot, they cannot even pray, right? They cannot worship. They go in as a tourist, they take, you know, some pictures, they, they leave, right? They cannot worship in their own site of their own most holy site, the temple. So, so these images are disturbing, right? And, and you picture what happened here. And Jesus is very clear that what happens is not just that the Roman army was out of control and that somehow God couldn't stop it. Jesus says no. He says, uh, th this great distress upon the earth is God's wrath against his people. Right? It's God's wrath against his people. Um, my, my point here is we need to develop a, th a theology of God's wrath. Because Jesus is very clear and scripture is very clear that God's wrath is a real thing. And what do we do with an angry God? How many of you really like this idea that God is angry? And not just angry, but that, um, you know, this picture is of pregnant ladies and babies, right? When God's wrath comes, it's not a picture of God, 
you know, somehow preserving and protecting the harmless, these little infants and babies. I mean, it's a wrath that is brutal. It comes against the the city and all its inhabitants. Uh, This this kind of picture is is certainly not politically correct. It is not, in fact, in, in modern warfare, Heaven forbid that a stray missile should hit a hospital, right? Bad press. Uh, You can go to war, but you cannot attack the innocent. But here's a picture of a God who has no problem, no problem attacking the apparently innocent. What do we do with this? Um, Well, certainly most of us as Christians don't don't like wear T-shirts. I serve a really angry God. (laughs) Watch out. Uh, Most of us don't really promote that. Right. In fact, there's a lot of uh, in the church today. One, I think, you know, in honor of Martin Luther, right? Uh, you know, the modern church has this um, this mission to make God a lot less angry than He really would appear to be in the Old Testament. Right? And maybe maybe our Martin Luther 95 thesis is to make a poster that says God is really ticked off and pounded on the church door. Right. Um, because there, there's an effort and there's a move among Christians uh, and among the church to sidestep this issue of God's anger and his wrath, to somehow dilute it or excuse it or uh, dismiss it. But it's hard to do. And the reason it's hard to do is there are, you may, may have a guess how many verses there are in the Bible that speak of God's wrath. Anybody? Anybody say 100? Anybody? More? How many say more than 100? Okay, how many say more than 200? More than 500? There's actually 600 references to God's wrath using 20-some different words. Okay, this is a hard one to dismiss. 600-some references, right? It's hard to cut this one out of the Bible, especially when Jesus uses a lot of them, right? Uh, And Jesus clearly sanctions what God is going to do to Jerusalem. And all of its... and, And Jesus is not confused about how horrible it will be. I mean, he's very descriptive here. Jesus is painting a picture of this wrath that is not politically correct. It's kind of over the top. What do we do with that? Right? What do we do with that kind of understanding? And, and what should our theology be and our understanding be of this God who acts with such wrath, right? who calls and claims the right to vengeance? Well, I do believe it's important that we understand this truth about God, but we understand it in its right context. God is an angry God, and there are times when he will judge and, and will send judgment. Uh, let's think a little bit about how this works. First of all, uh, we are not to be angry, right? The Bible is very clear that wrath and anger and vengeance are reserved for God and God alone. Uh, we, we don't get the privilege of, of, of justifying our anger. Now, that's unfortunate because when I'm angry, there's always a good reason for it. Right? God may not have a good enough reason, but I do when I'm angry. Right? I'm justified in my wrath. The scripture is pretty clear that this is reserved for God, that our anger is far too selfish and far too unjust. But it is, it is his role and it is his right and, and God's role as judge. God is a judge over the earth. Over the earth. He's creator. He, he made us. 
And he's absolutely fair in his judgments. So unlike us who always will see things somehow in our own selfishness, God is unselfish. And he's absolutely fair and perfect and just in his judgments. Um, But as a judge, um, justice demands punishment, right? And and we all get this. In our our world, uh, when criminals are, are brought before justice, when they're caught for some crime against children or against innocent people, against um, the, their victims, whether it's murder or rape or assault or whatever, uh, we want justice, right? We, if the person's proven guilty beyond a shadow of, of a doubt, there's a sense that they should pay for their crime, that they should not get off the hook. And so the job of the judge is to hand down the sentence. Now, did you ever wonder what this would be like? Um, now, if you're a victim, uh, we would love to hand down a sentence against those who have hurt us, right? But a judge can't do that, right? A judge has to be somewhat unbiased and impartial to be truly fair and righteous in his judgment. But uh, we want judges who have some measure of compassion. But you don't want a judge who's absolutely heartless or ruthless, right? A judge has to be fair. He has to look at the evidence. But he also must have, to be a perfect judge, must have some measure of compassion, so how does this work? Imagine you're the judge, right? And you're sitting high up in your bench in the courtroom. You've got your big gavel there to say, you know, order in the court. And uh, the, the case is finished, and they've handed down the verdict, and the, the jury says, we found the de- defendant guilty on all charges. And it was a unanimous decision. And as you've heard the case, you would agree with the verdict. You know that the proof and the evidence is that this person is guilty, And so you as a judge, you look at this person, but you see this person is not a monster, is not some kind of beast. They're a human being. And and maybe, you know, they've they've had time to sit in jail and they're, 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 they're in handcuffs and you see the human side of them and there are tears in their eyes. And and they stand up and they plead their life before you. And they uh, they ask for mercy. And as a judge, you see, and you're moved with compassion because you see this human being who's pleading for their life, right? And you know that their crime is horrible and that it deserves the death penalty, right? It deserves the most severe punishment. And because of your compassion, uh, you are somewhat moved to be lenient and to hold back punishment, right? Now, we want God to be like that, to have that kind of compassion when he looks on us. Right? We want him to see us and we want to plead our life and plead our case. And we, we want a God of compassion who, who's capable of giving mercy. Right? But you're still the judge, you're still in the courtroom, and, and there's, there's the criminal. But across the aisle on the other side is the victim's. Right, the family of the person brutally murdered. Right? And you see them, and you have compassion for them as well. And you see the pain and loss and agony that this crime has caused in this family's life. The loss of loved ones, the loss of income, the loss of support, the loss um, of love. Uh, and if you have compassion for the victim, how do you respond? Well, the right response is to be angry. 
right, is to be angry. Now, to, to kind of up the stakes a little bit, imagine that the victim was your own child, right, or your own family, right? Is it right to feel angry? Well, yeah, right? That is the right response. And you see, what we don't understand about God's wrath is we, we see God's wrath as, as his, um, you know, his response to those who deserve justice but are crying for mercy, right? Uh, because we all think of ourselves as worthy of deserving to be let off easy when we're the criminal, what we've got to understand is that God's wrath is ultimately his compassion for victims. Right? His compassion about his own glory that is under attack. And his zeal for his own righteousness. Right? It, is, uh, it is the right response of God when he looks at how sin has harmed his perfect creation. So that's the first thing we've got to understand about God's wrath. God's wrath is rooted in his love. It is, it is his loving reaction when his dearly loved and precious creation is abused and trampled. Right? A second thing about his wrath we must also understand, though, and it is this. The God in his grace always gives fair warning. Right? Throughout Scripture... Throughout Scripture, God never unleashed his wrath without first giving a warning. And usually many warnings. Many warnings, right? And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is giving warnings. He's throwing out the warning signs. He's saying, look, this is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And there's going to be warning signs. And you're going to have time to escape, right? I'm warning you. God's wrath always comes with plenty of warning. All the way back in the beginning of Luke, John the Baptist said this, as people were coming out to be baptized, remember this? John said, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Well, I always thought that was an odd question. Who, what, what is the answer to that? Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Well, ultimately, God did. Right? God warns us of the trouble that's to come. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He says, Jerusalem will be destroyed. Here's the warning. When you see those signs, run. Get out of Dodge. Get out of Jerusalem. Right? Flee. Uh, he gives warning, and there's always a clear way of escape. Always. Right? Um, but we must heed those warnings. We've got to pay attention. Right? And it is an act of faith to know the signs and heed them and respond accordingly. Um, so... It is a matter of faith how we respond to those warning signs. God is love, uh, and in his love he warns us, and he does give us the opportunity to appeal to his mercy. Um, third thing about God's wrath that we need to understand. So first of all, it really is rooted in his love. Right? God's love would not be true love if he did not respond with wrath when people he loves are hurt. Secondly, uh, it is his right response, but he always gives a warning. Thirdly, love and wrath see their perfect combination in the cross. Right? Uh, when, when God sent Jesus to the cross to die for our sins, 
it was both his love and his wrath poured out, right? His love towards us, his wrath poured out on Christ. And the unfortunate thing about what we have, what we do when we say that God can't be angry is we diminish what Jesus did on the cross, right? It makes the cross shallow and empty if it's love and it's not wrath. Uh, when we understand that, because here's the deal, um, Grace is getting what you don't deserve, right? Um, and I always get this confused. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, and mercy is getting what you do deserve. Or mercy is not getting what you do deserve, and grace, I don't know. Anyway, it has a lot to do with what you do and don't deserve, and not getting one or the other, right? Well, what, is, what do you deserve, really? Right? We deserve God's wrath. And we can never really appreciate the power of grace until we understand the depth of what we deserve because we have violated God's holy standards and we have rebelled against him. We make the cross cheap and empty when we take away God's wrath. Um, And we make the gospel shallow and hollow um, when we say that God cannot be a God of wrath. It diminishes both love and grace. Okay, enough of that. Uh, So that's the warning sign against Jerusalem. But then Jesus shifts gears and he he gives another set of warning signs for the end. And remember, Jesus has separated these into two separate events. He says, this is what will come before Jerusalem falls. This is what will come before the end. He says, and then there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. Uh, These are, again, warning signs. And warning signs of what? Well, Jesus doesn't state it, but it's implied that just as Jerusalem fell as a result of wrath, that the end will also be a time of the outpouring of God's wrath. That's why it's a warning sign. He's warning that there is more wrath to come. And he gives these signs. He says there will be uh, changes, there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and something about the waves. Now, it's very obscure, uh, very fuzzy. We don't want, know what those are. But it implies that it's beyond just natural disasters and it's universal. Unlike local floods and local earthquakes and, and local wars, when the end comes, the signs will be so visible every person on earth will know them. It will be in the sun and the moon and the stars. What exactly happens, I don't know. But I, uh, the way Jesus describes what happens here, he says that the people on earth will be, will be in distress and they will be perplexed. Uh, it's language that means they can't explain what's happening. And I believe that the signs will be so dramatic, and, and I don't know, I'm not, I don't know what they will be, but it could be that they're so dramatic that they are... Uh, beyond the, the description or explanation of science, right? Like, like imagine if the, if the moon turned blue, right? And the sun turned green, right? I would love to see the scientists try to explain this, right? And we start going back to things like about the mice and cheese. I don't know what we do with that, right? I think it's going to be perhaps like that, that the oceans will rise or the waves will get bigger and, and they won't be able to explain why, right? All their scientific theory, their understanding of physics in the universe won't apply anymore. Right? 
Now imagine, and again, I don't know that that's what it is. I don't know what these signs will be. But just imagine what would happen if all of a sudden the laws of physics stopped working in the universe, right? What would modern man do with that? Well, we would have problems, right? We, we would have problems because we, we have security in those laws. I don't know if you just saw this, but there is a meteor coming towards Earth. You may see this. Just, they just discovered this two days ago, three days ago. Meteor coming towards Earth, and it's going to come within about 200,000 miles. Now, that's like, like in space where you measure things in light years. 200,000 miles is really close, really close, right? Uh, but the scientists are all saying, but don't worry, we're absolutely confident it's not going to hit us. Well, why are they that confident? Well, because they're convinced their math is that good and that physics is that constant, right? That, the earth, that this meter can come this close, but we don't have to worry because our math is that good. What happens if math doesn't work anymore, right? Well, then that meteorite could take us out, right? I don't know what the signs are. And, of course, you know, meteorites are a popular one. I do know this. The world will, will be distressed and perplexed. There will be this sense of being trapped in a cage with no escape. Right? Uh, you know, there's lots of movies about the end of the world, and I love the movies about the end of the world because physics still work. And so man is able to, you know, go up and land a spaceship on the meteorite and blow it up and save the world, Right? Uh, or you can, um, like the books, you know, the end of the world is going to come, but I've got a book to tell you how to survive it, right? Because we have the sense that, you know, we can overcome this. Well, Jesus says that in those days it will be so devastating, whatever these signs are, are so overwhelming that humanity as a whole will be hopeless. Okay, there, there won't be these grand missions to space to blow up the meteor, there will be this sense of absolute dread that we are trapped and there is no way out. They are perplexed. They are at a complete loss as what to do. And the result of that, it says that, that people will be fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Uh, here's the good news for us. You're not going to miss the end of the world, right? If you're lucky enough to live there which we could be, our children very well could be, our grandkids even more so, right? Uh, it could happen soon. Uh, you're not going to miss it. It's going to be that obvious, right? And the sense of, of the world, and not just people here and there, not just a few crazy fanatics, but the overwhelming sense of people all around the world is going to be one of absolute terror and foreboding, there will be the certain expectation that the world is about to end. Right? Now imagine, just imagine, just think about what this will be like, right? Like, how do people feel right now when, when their currency falls, right? Or when, like, the stock market crashes? Like, what, 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 how do people deal with this? Are people calm about this? Stock market just crashed by, you know, 50%. My house that was worth $300,000 is now worth like $50,000. I'm okay with that, really. I'm okay with that, right? Is that how people respond? No, people get depressed. People stress out. People freak out. Okay, imagine when the, the headline is, the end of the world is absolutely certain. It's over. 
forget the stock market, forget your house, you're a goner. Right? What's that going to do to how people feel? Well, there's going to be incredible panic, incredible panic in the world. Right? It's not just going to be rumors of wars and political chaos. There will be real on chaos. There will be fear. And Jesus says there will be this paralyzing dread of what's to come next. Okay, happy times, right? Um, we certainly don't want to live in those days, but when they come, we will not miss them. The signs will be obvious. Dread and doom and the expectation of an inescapable end is what will be obvious to the world. That's what Jesus is saying here. Right? Um, but again, it's a warning. Right? Jesus communicates these things as a warning to, to, the, to the world. The world will not continue on as it is forever. Life will not continue on as you know it forever. There will be an end, and as it draws close, there will be signs that will be unmistakable. And it is a sign that the wrath and vengeance of God is coming again. Not just against the city, against the world and the universe. As God pours out his vengeance on those who have rejected him. And so the question is, are you heeding the warnings? Uh, now, in this instance, you cannot run, right? There's no place to run to. But notice what Jesus says. He ends with these two great points. He says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Right? This is going to be good news for us. Okay, if we live through this time, uh, it's going to be freaky. It's going to be terrifying. But then the most cool thing ever is going to happen. You are going to see Jesus coming in the clouds. Right? The Son of Man coming in the clouds. This image is taken from Daniel 7. We don't have time to read it this morning. It's too bad. Go home and read Daniel 7. It describes this picture of what will happen when, when Jesus comes in the clouds and reestablishes his kingdom on earth, overthrows the beasts and the evil rulers and wickedness, and cleans out the earth and sets up a kingdom for his people. Uh, he comes in the clouds, and that's a picture of Jesus coming with authority. God alone rides on the clouds. And he comes with glory and power. And, and Jesus says that they will see it. Everyone will see it. Again, nobody's going to miss it. Right? It will be the main topic of news. But for many people, it will not be good news. Right? Those who did not heed the warnings, the sign of Jesus only adds to the impending doom. But to us who know him, this is what he says. Now, when these things begin to take place, in other words, when the sun turns green or whatever happens, right, when the oceans rise and, and um, Chiang Mai is now beachfront, beachfront property or Doi Su Tab becomes beachfront property, um, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Uh, what does that mean, straighten up? Like a soldier? I mean, what, is, what does this mean, straighten up, raise up your heads? What does that mean? Well, some commentators say that it means you're supposed to look up and, you know, you'll see Jesus coming. But I don't think that's what it means. The words here are, especially the word to raise up your head, is a picture of somebody who's, like, very confident. Right? Somebody who's got their head held high, 
who's got confidence. In fact, the word can be used negatively as somebody who's overly conceited or proud. Right? Uh, but it's a picture of somebody who has bold confidence. So here's the setting. The world starts falling apart. You know, gravity stops working. The, the, the laws of the universe and physics stop following what we expect. And the world is freaking out. And the world is terrified and they are cowered in fear. They are not lifting up their heads. They are not standing tall. They are humbled and brought low. And they are bowed before and cowed before the, the, the earth that is shaking, the heavens that are shaking. But if you know Jesus, he commands you, stand tall and, and raise your head up. You have a confidence because you know what comes next. And what comes next is what? Jesus. Right? Your king returns and he sets up a kingdom that you will live in forever. Daniel, I, should, I just need to throw this in. Daniel makes it clear and, and other gospels make it clear that right up to this time, the church will face terrible persecution. So it's not going to be easy to stand up, right? You stand up and get your head up, you're going to get shot at, right? He says, stand up. Have confidence in the promises of God and know that if you have heeded the warnings, you have nothing to fear because your rescuer is coming. Amen? Uh, And so it will end, right? So it will end. Jesus will come. And uh, the, the answer is, you know, run to him. You cannot run away from the problems. But he calls you to run to him, the one who is the Savior who will bring salvation. We are not to freak out about the end times. And in the passage last week, Jesus makes it clear we are not to uh, overdo this, right? But we need to be prepared. We need to know that God's judgment, and this judgment isn't, by the way, just for the living. It's for the living and the dead. The end will come and God will bring judgment and he will rightly distribute his vengeance. The warning is to us, right? Do we trust in his promise? Do we trust in his compassion through, through the cross to save us? If so, stand tall. Right? Stand with bold confidence in God's salvation for your You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Redemption is drawing near.